The Permaculture Podcast is made possible episode after episode by contributions from listeners. Will you support this work? If so, visit thepermaculturepodcast.com, click on the support tab, and invest in this resource for our community. This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. As I was reminded in a recent conversation, we protect what we love. As the ethics of permaculture call for us to care for earth and people, then practicing permaculture can be a political act requiring activism on our part. In this conversation facilitated by guest host David Bilbrey, John Seed shares his work of nearly 40 years to preserve landscapes all over the world, beginning first in New South Wales, Australia, to save rainforests. He and others in those early days created the many direct actions now used by activists and protesters, including things like tree-sitting or chaining oneself to industrial equipment. It's with that background that David gives us a more thorough introduction and then invites John to share his story. So let's go ahead and get started, and I'll join you again afterward. Hi, this is David Bilbrey with Ecothinka.com and the Permaculture Podcast. I'm here today with John Seed. He is a rainforest activist and protector. Uh, Since 1979, he's been involved in the indirect actions which have resulted in protection of rainforest around the world. He's worked to protect sacred ecologies from Australia to Ecuador, Cambodia to India. Currently, he's working to save the Los Cedros Biological Reserve in Ecuador. John, welcome. Oh, thanks a lot, David. So I discovered this uh, Los Cedros project through this Jeff Lawton video that was seven minutes long that was just beautiful and just want to learn more about uh, that particular rainforest project, but I'm also interested in other projects that you've done around the world. So that was a short introduction, but if you'd like, go ahead and just tell us a little bit more about yourself and what you've been involved in. In the mid-1970s, I was living uh, on a community in northern New South Wales, Australia, community of Buddhist meditators. We'd uh, build a meditation center, organizing meditation retreats, growing our own food, delivering our own babies, building our own houses illegally, practicing permaculture. And uh, I thought I was going to spend the rest of my life doing that when uh, mysteriously in August of 1979, I found myself uh, somehow embroiled in what Years later, we realised was the first direct action in defence of rainforests, not only in Australia, but anywhere in the world, as far as we know. So this uh, was just a bunch of hippies from a nearby sort of uh, hippie settlement called Nimbin, which is the kind of the centre of um, alternative culture in Australia. And um, those first actions were extraordinarily successful because uh, the society had yet to develop any antibodies to these kinds of theatrical expressions of people climbing up into the trees and chaining themselves to bulldozers and so on. So that um, from a standing start, no one had ever heard of rainforests in 1979. It wasn't part of the vocabulary. But uh, in less than two years, uh, because we were able to be the first item on the news night after night and front page of the newspaper, these kinds of actions were so unusual, we were able to, you know, get our point across and the time was obviously right. People agreed with us so that um, in 1981, an opinion poll found that over 70% of the people of New South Wales wanted an end to rainforest logging and uh, the government of the day legislated with a string of national parks that stretched uh, more than 800 kilometres from the Queensland border almost all the way down to Sydney and it included the 
few thousand hectares of Terrania Creek was included in the Nightcap National Park in northern New South Wales. These were subtropical rainforests, and from there we uh, went on to um, a huge campaign down in Tasmania to protect the temperate rainforests in the island state on the south of Australia. A huge dam project had begun that would have flooded the heart of the wilderness in the southwest of Tasmania, and more than 3,000 people came from all over the country to the blockade that we set up there. Uh, more than 1,500 people were arrested. And once again, uh, people, you know, the people of Australia agree with us and uh, that project was stopped. And two years later, we went up to far north Queensland for the tropical rainforest, a place called Cape Tribulation near the Daintree River. And there we actually spent two years up there struggling and once again, national parks and eventual World Heritage listing rewarded our efforts. So um, that was very empowering start to life as an activist. We um, created the Rainforest Information Centre in order to sound the alarm during those first half of the 80s for every forest that was being protected in the world. A thousand forests were disappearing and so we um, started to uh, try and alert people everywhere and see if we could find allies. In the United States, our first allies was the Earth First movement. I was writing for their journal, the Earth First Journal, starting in 1981. And um, they were impressed with both the points that I was making about the rainforest, that they are the very womb of life, uh, home to more than half of the species of plants and animals in the world. And also uh, they were impressed by the results that we were having in Australia. And so um, Dave Foreman and uh, Mike Rosell, two of the founders of Earth First, invited me to come over and to start a rainforest campaign in the United States. That was in 1984. And so we travelled in the back of Dave Foreman's little VW combi bus. I think we went about 7,000 miles in a couple of months uh, going from city to city where local Earth First chapters would set up an event for us and uh, I'd show the film that we made at Terrania Creek and we started rainforest action groups wherever we went. So um, that was very powerful. I, I went back there a couple of years later and we um, had by then we'd discovered that, first of all, the last gig in that tour in 1984 was in San Francisco and it was organised by a guy called Randy Hayes, who was then uh, working with Friends of the Earth. And at the end of that event, where uh, it was the biggest event, uh, Gary Schneider was there reading poetry and all the luminaries from San Francisco showed up. And at the end of that event, uh, Randy uh, announced that he was going to start a rainforest action network in the United States. And that is now probably the largest um, activist group looking at rainforests worldwide. Two years later, we did another roadshow for Earth First. Uh, at this time, we discovered that the most severe impact to the rainforests of Central and South America was coming from their conversion to pasture, that uh, you could drop a few cents off the price of a hamburger in the United States by growing the beef on uh, what had been rainforests in, in South America. And uh, we discovered that Burger King was the biggest culprit. So uh, we did, once again with Earth First, we had a roadshow around the United States uh, in May of 1986, I think it was, which we called Whopper Stopper Month. And uh, we went around with a, a paper mache and cloth cow. And after each of the roadshows, we'd go out to a nearby Burger King and have a street theatre, which we'd invite the media to. 
which would include this uh, paper mache and cloth cow eating uh, whoppers and uh, sorry, eating rainforest and shitting out whoppers. Um, you know, so we were able to get lots and lots of publicity uh, in this way. Our last gig on that tour was in the Twin Cities uh, in Minnesota, which was where uh, Burger King had their corporate headquarters. We did our action outside at their corporate headquarters on that occasion and uh, a couple of uh, reporters from um, NPR went upstairs to interview the Burger King executives and they announced that they were going to source all of their beef in, you know, from the United States, that they weren't going to use rainforest beef after that. I'm not sure that we can uh, necessarily trust that that continued, but at the same time it was just a very uh, strong kind of start to the movement in the United States. And... Um, I went on to rainforest campaigns in uh, all over the Pacific and Papua New Guinea and the Solomon Islands. Uh, if you go to the Rainforest Information Centre website and hit on video activist, there are films about many of these uh, campaigns and uh, often quite successful um, in Thailand, in uh, Cambodia, in Borneo. So, you know, I've, I've been active ever since in protecting rainforests in different parts of the world. So let's talk a little bit about Los Cedros and um, what's going on there and, and what can be done. The Rainforest Information Centre has always been uh, a bunch of volunteers. Um, we've never had anyone on a payroll or anything like that. And one of our volunteers went over to Ecuador in the mid-80s after receiving a letter from a, uh, an American Peace Corps volunteer called Jaime Levy, who was working with an indigenous community on the Colombian border called the Awa. And um, he somehow had found out about our work to protect rainforests and he said that the Awa were losing their rainforests. Could someone help them? You know, so my friend uh, Doug Ferguson went over there and he ended up spending the next seven years in Ecuador and uh, probably the most successful of all of our group in terms of just the sheer size of the rainforest that he was able to protect in one way or another. I think he'd only been there for a year when um, someone had heard about him, a guy called uh, Jose Decou, who was an American uh, living in Ecuador and who had uh, discovered this extraordinary uh, plateau called the Los Cedros Plateau and um, was looking for help to try and stop the colonisation that was taking place there. I'll come back to this point, but uh, I have to go back a couple of years when we had started the first internet service provider in Australia. It was called Pegasus Networks, the first one outside the government or a university. Because we were sort of connected to email before email really existed, we were in touch with uh, groups in the United States and uh, a group from Washington, D.C. called the Environmental Defence Fund contacted us in the mid-'80s with, you know, a story about the, about the role of the multilateral development banks and the World Bank in particular in environmental destruction and asked us to join them in a campaign to reform the environmental policies of the World Bank. So we, uh, you know, jumped in. Uh, we were excited to, to be working with groups from other parts of the world. But uh, in the process of that campaign, we discovered that Australia's bilateral aid, which, you know, um, only 15% of Australia's aid program was going through these multilateral banks. The rest of it was just country-to-country -country aid from Australia. And the Australian Development Assistance Bureau had exactly the same policies as the World Bank. And so there was a much bigger problem much closer to home and we started a campaign to reform the uh, environmental policies of AusAid, Australian government. 
Development Assistance Bureau. And uh, we were able to um, pull together a coalition of environment and aid social justice groups and successfully lobbied the Australian Senate to have an inquiry into the environmental impacts of the Australian aid program. Eventually, that inquiry came out with its findings and basically the Senate supported all of our criticisms of AusAid and made far-reaching changes to AusAid. That AusAid henceforth had to come up with environmental impact studies before it could begin a project, which they'd never had to do before, and they had to obey Australian environmental laws, even if they're working in a country that didn't have environmental laws of its own. But to rub salt in the wound, the Senate uh, decreed that a new funding window should be created at AusAid called the NGO Environmental Initiative, and that this would be a million dollars a year that would be available to Australian NGOs to create new standards of excellence, environmental excellence in the delivery of Australian aid. So um, we thought that we'd never see any of that money having been the main thorn in AusAid's side. But on the contrary, for the three years that that funding window was open before the next government slammed it shut again, every proposal we put to AusAid was funded. We realised that this could be a conflict of interest in terms of us continuing to hound them and keep them honest. And so we started a new NGO, the person who'd been running our World Bank and AusAid campaigns, a woman called Carol Sherman. She got together with another woman, Lee Rhiannon, who's now an Australian senator, and they started a new NGO called AidWatch to continue the work that we'd begun hounding AusAid and proving their environmental performance. But that meant that the Rainforest Information Centre could put in proposals and get money from um, AusAid for projects overseas. And we got money for projects in India, in Papua New Guinea, in the Solomon Islands, even in uh, Siberia. But in, in this case, we got money to um, help Jose de Coup to buy out the first handful of settlers, colonists, who had begun to colonise the Los Cedros Plateau. That's kind of where the money came from. In Ecuador at that time, a land reform program uh, had decreed that a landless person could begin to establish a land holding for themselves by going to a piece of, you know, inverted commas, unproductive land, in other words, pristine tropical rainforest, and if they cleared it and fenced it, this would be the first steps to them getting title to that land. And so this had begun at Los Cedros. Los Cedros was the kind of frontier of this push to colonisation, and so we were able to buy out the first of the colonists, pay them for the work that they'd already done. And the Ecuadorian government was so stunned that the Australian government was paying for this that they then turned Los Cedros into this biological reserve, Bosque Protector, I think about 18,000 acres, 7,000 hectares. I think that's about 18,000 acres of some of the most biodiverse forest in the world and Jose de Coup who had set all this in motion became the director there and has been ever since and during the 30 years since then there have been all kinds of threats and Jose runs the whole thing on a have you got the a saying there at the smell of an oily rag anyway if a car does good mileage you say you can run it on the smell of an oily rag and so a very lean operation not requiring a lot of funding but Whenever he had an emergency, he'd call us and we'd step in. You know, the last one before this, 
an organised wave of colonisation was moving in one corner of the reserve. The local police were happy enough to trek over there, several days trek to get there in order to expel them, but they needed mules and they needed lunch. You know, so we paid for the mules and the food that allowed the police to go and expel the invaders, you know. I mean, it was one thing after another. It was illegal logging, it was poaching, you name it. And um, as a result of our perseverance, and, you know, Los Cedros is now the best forested watershed in northwest Ecuador. Uh, This is according to the professor of uh, ecology at Oregon State University, one of the many scientists who works there. So it was with uh, considerable uh, distress that we learned about a year ago through the press release that came from a Canadian mining company that they'd been given a mining concession that covered Los Cedros. This was the first that we'd heard about it. And as we began to explore what was going on, we discovered that Los Cedros wasn't the only protected forest that had been treated in this way. And so we hired two Ecuadorian activists to do research for us and uncovered this extraordinary iceberg of which Los Cedros was the tiniest tip where um, more than three quarters of a million hectares of protected forests had been handed over to mining companies from China, Chile, Canada, Australia, you name it, and a million hectares of indigenous reserves. So uh, we um, got together with Ecuadorian civil society and uh, there's now a coalition of some 30 NGOs and 10 or 12 local governments that are petitioning the um, Ecuadorian government to... uh, rescind these mining concessions. The concessions were granted by a previous government and the person in charge of the office that gave those concessions was the vice president of Ecuador, a man called Glass, and uh, last month he was jailed for corruption. The corruption he was jailed for wasn't to do with these mining concessions but was to do with oil concessions, but it's very likely in our view that there was corruption involved in the mining concessions as well and uh, there was no notification it was completely illegal the the ecuadorian constitution requires for example that um, prior informed consent by indigenous communities before anything like this can happen there and there was nothing like that they didn't even hear about it many of them until we discovered it and uh, and the Ecuadorian government didn't announce it until August and in August it appeared on the government websites and the amount of uh, Ecuador that was covered by mining concessions went up overnight from 2% to 11% of the country. Most of that were these protected areas and indigenous reserves. So Ecuadorian civil society is mounting a campaign within Ecuador and they've asked for our help both to inform people around the world. They, they think that um, it's going to be a lot easier to convince their government if their government has the sense that the world is watching. And also they've asked us to help raise funds for a publicity campaign in Ecuador because the mining company is obviously not going to take this lying down. According to mining company media, uh, they're expecting the amount of investment in Ecuador to go up by a factor of eight, from $1 billion to $8 billion over the next two or three years due to a revised regulatory framework. Isn't that cute? And so I'm talking to you because I'm hoping that 
your listeners will be as outraged as I am and will look for the petition on our website, rainforestinformationcentre.org, and not only sign the petition, but forward it to your friends, put it out on social media and, you know, see if we can turn this into something significant. Because, of course, the mining companies, uh, even if it can be proved that the contracts uh, were corruptly uh, obtained, which, you know, we don't know whether they were and we don't know if they were, we don't know whether it can be proved, they're going to struggle tooth and nail not to be pushed back out of there and the Ecuadorian government is going to need all the help it can get and all the you know moral support and every kind of support in order to find a way out of the mess that it's in. So what are they what are they mining primarily? Oh well these are exploratory concessions and so we don't know yet. Uh, what we do know is that the World Bank once again is one of the uh, furtive villains in the wings because the World Bank paid for flights all over the country, especially over these protected areas that did the geological surveys that alerted the uh, mining companies to the existence of these deposits. But the, the mining companies haven't told us what it is, but we think it's going to be copper and gold that is what they're going to be looking for, but um, remains to be seen. Tell me a little bit more about the ecology of Los Cedros and why it's important, why it's valuable both now and in 500 years from now? Scientists have identified 36 biodiverse, what they call hotspots around the world, and the Choco region is the most biodiverse of all. Less than 2% of it remains. Um, 98% has been cleared for agriculture and other purposes. And so, you know, it's like um, the crown jewels of um, the Earth's biology is what's at stake. And this includes um, many endangered plants and animals that will be driven to extinction if development is allowed to proceed and includes many charismatic creatures like um, South America's only bear. The spectacled bear is uh, found at Los Cedros. It includes um, the puma and uh, a huge variety of birds and orchids. And I think there's over 130 species that are either um, endangered or, you know, on the brink of extinction that are found at Los Cedros. So it's, um, you know, if we're going to be taking a stand anywhere for protecting um, the future of, the, you know, the biological future of the world, then this would have to be one of the places. It's shocking that uh, these companies are willing to just destroy that uh, treasure. Wow. Okay. So let's talk about uh, economics, World Bank, <laughs> those type of things a little bit in the International Monetary Fund. How do those things tie in with, with these situations? They bankroll the whole thing, you know. So in, in this case, uh, they tie in because they, you know, how dare they fly over national parks and protected areas uh, doing the prospecting for the mining companies. I, I once wrote a, a song which I really like about the World Bank. Do you want to hear it? Usually I need a guitar, but, uh, you know, I think the lyrics are good enough that even uh, without a guitar it's worth, uh, worth a listen. Anyway, sure. if you don't like it, you can always uh, edit it out. <laughs> Here goes. Emanating from expensive business suits, do you notice odors foul and rank? With his ecocide genocide numbers game, here comes a world bank. Vampire needle dripping dollars, clutching his structural adjustment knife. Ecosystem after system is plundering lead to wasters from the earth. He sucks the life. 
teeth rip vital organs from the living earth, spitting out cellulose chips. How generous he greases all his minions' palms. His card reads ecological collapse. Economists from hell smooth the way. Run interference, quelling all your fears. With administrators, bureaucrats just doing my job. And all those damn engineers. World Bank's got an evil junkie wife. Goes by the name of IMF. Shoots up biological diversity. Dispenses cultural death. Mumbling about sustainable development. She plies her vicious trade. And if you see her coming, better run for your life. There's an S on the end of her aid. Asian, African, American development banks are World Bank's ugly cronies three. With their friends, the scumbag loggers from the FAO and the mafia from the UNDP. They loot the biological register with their tropic forest action plan. Scorched earth transmigration, chemicals, agribusiness, logging, mines and dams. Propping up corrupt third world elites, choke the rivers with endless dams. Keeping all them foreign experts employed with their paid for by your taxes scams. Rape the earth to meet the interest payments, it's that same old shell game. Centuries of exploitation and they still owe us colonialism by another name. The time has come to clean up this town, name names, flush out those crooks. Biological fabric in tatters, the World Bank cooks the books. Wake up now, won't you hear the cries of the planet of your birth? Expose the lies, no compromise in defense of Mother Earth. I said stop the lies, no compromise in defense of Mother Earth. Excuse the voice, but uh, that's, right. that's the song. You, you covered a lot of ground. <laughs> oh, exactly. And uh, every word is true. <laughs> I'm just uh, learning a little bit more about the IMF and how uh, after World War II, they had a lot of money and went around lending money to third world nations that had no ability to pay it back and often built presidential palaces of dictators. And these countries have been suffering under debt payments and interest for you know, ever since. And uh, so a that's lot right. Of- and and they're, therefore they're forced to sell off their assets, you know, you know the biology and, uh, and the people, you know, like um, uh, the, the, they become slaves in order to pay the unpayable debt. And, you know, looking at the immigration issues that have become so horrible here in the last several years and people, you know, some countries want immigrants, some people, some don't. And I just keep thinking what's, What's really going on? What's causing all of these people to be so desperate that they'll go across oceans and walk across countries with their children and risk their lives because it's so unlivable? And I'm not an expert in economics, but it seems like it it comes back to the way economic systems are run in America and other places and clearly the IMF and World Bank. Do you have kind of a cliff notes on, on how those things connect? especially relating to uh, extreme poverty and perhaps a um, idea of how we can move forward to eradicate this disease from the planet? Well, I mean, uh, the place that I would start would be to uh, recognize that the economic system itself is a religion 
masquerading as a science. So, you know, economics claims to be a science. In fact, it's the only one of the social sciences that is hard enough to have its own Nobel Prize. And this is complete, uh, you know, it's hoodwinking us. It's actually the most pious religion that the world has ever known, where the temples are 100 stories high and the worshippers are worshipping from Monday to Friday, not, uh, not just the weekend. And um, its success comes from its ability to masquerade itself as being secular. In fact, you know, like it's based upon tenets of faith that are utterly extraordinary in how ludicrous they are, such as it's possible to have infinite growths on a finite planet and uh, such as uh, nothing has any value until we human beings add our labour and intelligence to it. Human beings are the centre of everything and human beings create value. So the earth itself has no value until we... uh, dig it up and turn it into shit oil or whatever we, you know, whatever we manufacture out of it. So this, uh, this religion has completely swept the world and as, uh, you know, all of the other religions are just like very small bit players in comparison. And I believe that uh, we need to understand this before we can begin to find solutions. I've, I've written a, um, a paper which people can find on the Rainforest Information Centre website and they can also find the World Bank song sung with a guitar a lot better than I just sang it before. Excellent. So um, how can the average person affect change once they become aware of this? Oh, well, I mean, uh, for the moment, the the easy way in terms of the particular issue I'm working on is to uh, go to the petition, sign the petition and help us spread the word about it. If people have more energy than that, Jeff Lawton, um, my permaculture hero, I I did my PDC with Jeff uh, twice uh, love his work. He did a seven-minute video, um, very passionate video about Los Cedros, uh, and uh, that, as well as uh, our own videos about Los Cedros and the threats that it's under, can also be found on the Rainforest Information Centre website. And uh, people could, um, uh, you know, have a screening in their home and invite their friends and just start to spread the word about it. But I mean, basically, I think what we've got to do is get together with like-minded, like-hearted people and uh, discuss, you know, what's happening to our world and what what we're going to do about it. So I'm not suggesting that Los Cedros is the most important issue that there is. People can decide for themselves what it is that they'd like to do. But basically, we, you know, we need to we need to join together with others and uh, begin to build up movements to uh, prevent the scorched earth policies that are destroying our future. And what can we do on a broader scale to address the the economic injustice and these economic systems that are causing such extreme poverty in various places across the globe? I don't know what we can do on a broader scale until we build up, uh, you know, until the 99% is able to organise itself a little bit better than they've been able to do, we've been able to do thus far. And so uh, I think we just need to uh, find the determination that we're going to find solutions and find other people and begin to build up movements. Uh, I'm a great fan of uh, Joanna Macy, an American um, uh, philosopher and uh, deep ecologist, and she says that uh, what we're being called to do, the great work that lies before us is to uh, participate in what she calls the great turning, the turning away from the industrial growth society and towards a life-sustaining society. And she sees that there are three 
modes of action that people can take. And we might find ourselves doing one of these or more than one of these. The first one are the holding actions, things like the blockade at Terrania Creek where, or protecting Los Cedros, where we're just trying to stop the destruction of nature, of Indigenous peoples, of culture, of language and so on. The second one is building the new society even while the dinosaur continues to thrash, not waiting for the you know, industrial growth society to fall down, but beginning to build the models of what we want the world to look like. And so that includes permaculture and transition towns and so on and so on. And finally, there's the work on consciousness itself. How do we create a viable consciousness? How do we critique the religion of economics, critique the anthropocentrism or human-centeredness that's driving this whole thing, this ridiculous idea that the humans are the spider in the middle of the web rather than recognising that we're just one strand in the web and if we destroy the other strands, we destroy ourselves. That's uh, well said. Well, uh, thank you for taking the time to talk today, John. It was educational and uh, I'll definitely look into those resources and we'll put links in the show notes to everything that you mentioned there. Good on you, David, and thanks for asking good questions. And that was John Seed. You'll find links to Los Cedros and the Rainforest Information Center in the resource section of the show notes. Given all the names and organizations that John mentioned, the resource section is quite extensive, and the first link there is the Save Los Cedros petition so you can get involved. In early November, I posted a question to the Facebook page for the show asking, should permaculturists get involved in politics? I received a number of responses that ranged from politics and permaculture equal incompatible to absolutely, everyone should get involved in politics. If we leave it only to those who are attracted to it, we get exactly the current situation. My own personal perspective and why I was interested in David's interview with John rests closer to that second answer, that we should all be involved. As a permaculture practitioner, my focus continues to be on the philosophical underpinnings of this holistic systems thinking approach, paired with the social, economic, and yes, political change we can create through applying those ideas to intentional design. With that said, however, though I see the world through this lens of political and social action, I see it that we should engage in the activities we are called to. We only have so much time in our lives to work on the issues that matter to us. If you only have so much interest in politics, but you live in a democratic society with elections, then you can vote. If you want to go a step further and add your voice to the work of others, then you can do things like getting involved with the Rainforest Information Center. If you feel that working on or in politics holds the most possibility for you to affect change, then maybe, if you're in the right stage of your life, that means becoming a lawyer, to run for office, or work to enact policy changes at the municipal state, province, national, or international level. One of the things I love most about permaculture is the breadth of possibilities available to us. Wherever you are, whatever you do, use your knowledge and ability to create the world you want to live in. While you're doing that, know that tens of thousands of others are doing the same thing in their own way alongside you. If there is any way that I can help connect you to the resources you need, answer some questions, or help you get involved, email, call, or write show at thepermaculturepodcast.com, 717-827-6266, 
The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. Also be sure to look for the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. From here, the next episode is an interview with Maddie Harlan, the editor of Permaculture Magazine, to discuss her new book, Fertile Edges, and look at her more than 25 years at the center of the permaculture community. Until then, take care of Earth, yourself, and each other.